Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Can't get the, can you hear me? I can't get the, um, do I need, oh, here we go, got it. Hello, Calvin. How are we doing? All good. You, you flustered me by speaking in our Zoom chat. I was <laughs> about to about to start an intro. Uh, let me invite James, who is also struggling. Okay. What, what area? Serious? Hey. Hello, James. I don't know why I never get the notification. It's really I, weird. I didn't actually send it that time. That's why Calvin oh, like flustered me because I was about to do it and I was also about to think about talking, and okay. uh, yeah, it all went wrong. Sorry, that was my fault. We got too trapped in our own conversation pre-pod, and then <laughs> like, oh no, it's half, <laughs> it's past half nine. We're late, so we better yeah. get going. How are we all? Very well. Yeah, well, good. Yes, indeed. Um, I just, uh, I'm still in like adrenaline mode because, as I was just saying to you, um, I just witnessed my neighbour's bike get nicked, um, which is very dramatic. I've never, I don't think I've ever witnessed a crime before, which is weird because <laughs> I've lived in Streatham for a year. Um, but anyway, uh, let, let, let's I, move on. I, I'm at First the other end of the spectrum, I was going to say. Oh, I'm yeah, at the other end. Well, I, I got forced in at 7am into the office today. And it, since lockdown started, I've not woken up before 8.30 at all. So to be somewhere for 7am was pretty horrendous this morning, even with the clocks going back. At about 12pm this afternoon, my brain was so frazzled. I managed to send quite an important email off an account that wasn't mine. It was for a completely <laughs> wrong organization. So that was a real cock up today. So well done, me. But I've, I've right. made it, I've stayed up and I'm, I'm ready now. So I'm impressed. I'm, hype. I'm very impressed. Um, just a, a brief plug, as usual. Um, if you are listening back to this on uh, iTunes as a podcast or on Spotify, then please do, as always, leave us a review, lose a rating, tell your friends about us. 
Um, if you're listening live or you're listening for the first time, make sure you subscribe to Love Tennis Podcast or give us a Google or a follow on Twitter. You'll find us. It's not hard. Our SEO is very good. Let's start tonight with Alexander Zverev, who won back-to-back titles in Cologne because he won both the Bet One Hulks Indoors and the Bet One Hulks Championship. No doubt trophies that will take centre stage in his cabinet. I mean, it was a pretty impressive two weeks of tennis, really. Um, I think he dropped three sets in eight matches, nine games in his two finals. George, has he turned a corner since, I mean, what I think we all admit, and he admitted himself, was a difficult US Open final to lose on a number of levels? Yeah, very good stats, by the way. Just to start off, you, it's like you actually... preparation for this podcast, but I thought I'd try. <laughs> it's like normally your stats kind of come halfway through when you're kind of frantically Googling. So, like, being ready off the bat, I'm quite impressed with. I'm offended. <laughs> Do you want to answer the question? Um, yeah, sorry. Um, yes, it's been a good period for him. I think, obviously, reaching a first Grand Slam final was something that he should take heart from, even though we were quite critical of how he reached it. And then obviously the final itself was a really bad way to lose a Grand Slam final, even though he never particularly played amazingly anyway. Um, Mm. Then he lost to Sinner at the French. I I think judging from the results, it was kind of no surprise that guys who came from the US looking at the women's and the, the men's draw then didn't back it up that well at the French Open, guys who went deep. So... And Zverev also played really badly. I mean, how he got to the fourth round was a miracle. Yeah. Um, but he's gone uh, back to Germany, looks in pretty slick form. Um, you know, a win over Schwartzman in the final two and one. Schwartzman, okay, he's, uh, I wouldn't say he's the greatest indoor hard court player of all time, but as, as Calvin will tell you, if you're in form, you're in form. The courts aren't as different as they, they used to be. And Schwartzman's been in pretty solid form so to stick, go past him two and one on any surface is uh, no bad result and you know big sinner as well on route that's a pretty good week for him again well isn't and Calvin you'll be able to speak to this much better than me but isn't you know for someone like Zverev knowing what we know about him someone like Schwartzman is a bit of a nightmare matchup isn't he um, to a degree but I think if he's in good form a player like Zverev would, would prefer to play somebody like that who you know you're going to get a good hit on the ball at um, and be able to attack it. I think it's one of those that if it was if if he was out of form, it, it it would not be somebody who you would be wanting to play. But mm-hmm. but in form, I think he's um, he's in form. I, I don't think he'd mind that. In a, he'd take that in a final. I, I think it's worth kind of saying as well about Zverev now is like I think he's really establishing himself as one of the better, really really top level indoor hard players, court players as well. Like I think his form arguably on this surface is the best of any surface he plays on. I don't know if that's fair, but obviously he's won the ATP finals beating um, Federer there before. Um, did he beat Djokovic as well? He did, didn't he? He beat Federer yeah, and Djokovic yeah. back-to-back to win that. Um, so he's actually got quite a lot of pedigree on indoor hards. And when he gets that serve going indoors, he seems more comfortable serving indoors. Perhaps that's psychologically something to do with the wind. I don't know outdoors, but that is quite an interesting point that he seems to find his serve quite well on these um, indoor tournaments. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, there's a... Can you break this down, Calvin, maybe? Just the the major difference between playing outdoor and indoor that isn't just the wind. It's, it's pretty much the... It, 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 there's, there's thinner air indoors. The ball flies through the air a lot quicker. 
it mm. just feels like the court's quicker and you'd need a very, very slow indoor hard to to sort of match that. But still the ball's going to come through the air quicker because the, the, there's lack of, there's a less atmosphere, obviously. Mm. Um, and that that pretty much just makes everything a bit quicker. And Zverev is sort of, his game is tailor-made for a sort of medium-fast indoor hard court. He's got that big flat first serve. He strikes that, 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 that he's got a lovely backhand even at the worst of times. Um, he strikes that clean and flat. Um, and he, he he can just dominate. For, for what it's Where worth, uh, for what it's worth, I often compare my own game to Zverev, given his uh, troubles on serve. And I, I would say I prefer indoors more than anything as well. So the, the parallels George, continue. That's, that's a great comparison, George. Thank you very much. For that. Anyone who's ever seen George play, of the two listeners who have seen George play, because I know your mum listens, so she'll be able to play. But if possible, George, maybe you could appeal your similes to a slightly wider audience. <laughs> Just trying to grow a narrative with our audience, Jim. <laughs> Mine and Zverev's careers in tandem. I've joined a new club, by the way, in the fun news. Oh, oh yeah, but, go yeah. on, tell us <laughs> uh, Yeah, I've uh, moved somewhere a bit more local, so shout out to Coolhurst in Crouch End. I, I joined two weeks ago and then rolled my ankle playing football, so I've not been able to... Uh, it's been money well spent so far. So that is I'll let you know when I get on the court, aiming for Friday. So okay, we'll see. very good. Uh, more updates on Twitter, no doubt. Um, <laughs> I thought it would also be worth mentioning, given that we've talked about the finalists, the two losing semi-finalists um, in Cologne, what's German for two? Zwei, Cologne Zwei, uh, were Felix Algaraliassim and Yannick Sinner, two guys who we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I just thought worth noting that they are still both winning tennis matches. I also thought worth noting that is it, you know, if you don't move, if it, because of the way this tournament, these tournaments have been, two tournaments, same place, presumably for the players, it's an absolute dream. Like the second tournament, if you're playing well week one, presumably there's no reason you're not going to play well week two. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's, it, I guess it depends what, what the situation is like and with, with the sort of world we live in at the minute. If you're pretty much just in the same hotel room for two weeks on the bounce and going to the court, then that, that can sort of weigh you down um, a bit. But yeah, if you're in good form, then, you know, great news. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, let's move on to the women's game because actually the women's season uh, has finished in a sort of damp swell. I say a damp squib, but obviously, are you shaking your head at me, George, because it's not technically finished? It's one more to come, Lintz. How can I forget about Lintz? The great. It's a month away, pretty much. So it's kind. It's easy to forget. There's no tennis for three weeks. To be honest, if I was on the WTA tour now, I'd probably just sack it off. That's that's surely closer. That's surely closer to next year's start of the season than it is to where we are right now, isn't it? (laughs) I think I mentioned last week they were. sort of talking about putting something on in December as well, a kind of lower event, but it could in theory be like you play almost start your season, end of November, play that one in December and then you're in Australia. Um, Yeah. I suppose you kind of, I mean, you always as a tennis player, I think, because actually if you wanted to play all year round, you almost could, you almost always have to carve out your own and say, look, this is my six week, you know, block of pre-season and off-season or whatever. Um, nevertheless, it was a decent field in Ostrava, as you pointed out last week, George. Um, a, I think it's that. Can I just can I snip in there, James? I think it, yeah, it's a strange one in tennis in that I think it's probably only about the top 80 players in the world that actually have an off-season. The, the, oh, really? the other players will will tend to play straight through if they can. Um, because the, the, there's no reason why you wouldn't, because you've not there's nothing that you really try and peak for. 
um, outside of the top, outside of the top 50. Because you just so, trying to win whenever you can. Yeah, you're just trying to win. There's no sort of tournament, you know, you'd rather win at the slams, but they're tougher to win. So it's just, you, you know, you're just trying to churn out a win every single week. So um, basically the futures and the challenges will, will just carry on going. I don't know whether they will this year or not. But. Mm. It's, it's odd to think of, really, that you don't end up with an off-season. But yeah. as I think we've discussed before, at some levels, you might only be playing one match or two match, yeah. matches a week. Yeah. So you've got a bit more time off during the season. Yeah. Um, there was a WTA first in Ostrava, though, because it was an all-Belarusian final. Um, which is quite good because Belarus needs some good news at the moment. Uh, can't deny that. Um, a resurgent Victoria Azarenka, um, beaten by Irina Sabalenka. I'm told that Azarenka had a migraine, uh, and that might explain the somewhat one-sided uh, final. But credit to Irina Sabalenka, um, nevertheless. George, I think you noted earlier that she, she might be women's tennis's forgotten star, um, despite the fact that she was US Open champion like 14 months ago. Who was the US Open champion 14 months ago? Have I made that up? <laughs> Andrescu. <Yeah. laughs> I was like, uh, you really... You, I was going to say, I just missed the slam out here. <laughs> like, God, that pandemic really messed with my brain. Like, George, you know, you know when you said I'd done loads of research? <laughs> so I, I, I'm not wrong. She was a US Open champion 14 months ago. Doubles, yeah. Playing doubles, yeah, you see? Yeah. I was going to say, um, not, not singles, but... Um, well, yeah, she really I, is a forgotten star, yeah. She's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know her ranking right now, but I'd imagine it's still somewhere around 8 12, to 13, 11, 12, 11. there you go, 8 to 13, good guess. Um, you know, and it feels like she's been in that kind of slot for a while without maybe pushing on as much as I thought she was going to when she first kind of cracked the top 10. She it was quite a lot of big noise about her, she's got quite a big game. She was kind of in that cluster of... Well, it was kind of her in Osaka. I think Osaka actually won that first slam where she played Serena at the US Open. I think she might have played Sabalenka earlier in that tournament, possibly, and that was billed as quite a big match, or they were certainly kind of on the same sort of progression. Um, it's just not quite really happened. And it, even this week that she's won, I'm pretty sure Goff had match point maybe in the first round or whatever, so it, it could easily have gone kind of wrong for her. Um I, I didn't have a particularly salient point to make on her. Just I thought it was interesting that she was someone that is now perhaps being left out of these conversations we've been having recently, where we've been talking about Osaka, about Andrescu, about Goff, about Kenin, even you know Sabalenka. Even like a year and a half ago, before Andrescu won that tournament, was probably up there with um, Osaka as the most exciting one coming through, who'd kind of established herself near the top and. Yeah, she's still there, I guess, was sort of the point, but not really. <laughs> Calvin Sabalenka, future Grand Slam winner? Uh, in singles, it should be important to differentiate. I mean, it, it's always possible in the women's game, uh, I, I, but I think we're probably sort of headed to a spell where there's a bit more sort of predictability about the women's game. I think we've got three or four stars coming through, so I think they'll be sort of snapping up most of them. Um, Which I makes me, think... well, presumably you mean then that Sabalenka isn't one of those three or four stars. No, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't think she's, a, don't, she's, a, she's not at the same level as Goff, Asaka, uh, Andrescu, um, maybe even Anisimova in a couple of years' time. Um, I think she's the level below that, but that's not to say that, 
you know, the draws don't open up as we know that they do in the women's slams. Mm. Um, can we also just take a minute to appreciate like what Victoria Azarenka has done over the last, I mean, one yeah, year. Yeah, phenomenal. Years. You know, she's, she's up to 13 in the world, which is now her highest ranking since um, her break in 2016-17. Um, you know, she won at Cincy, final of the US. She won the title in Australia. She, sorry, lost in the final to Sabalenka, as we just said. It's a pretty, I mean, I don't know whether there's much more to say about it, but, you know, she's only 31 and she's in her second career and looking like a serious player. I, th- I think we kind of said the other week, you know, she she's a brilliant hardcore player. You know, she was kind of world number one pretty much based on her hardcore form back in like mm. 2012, 2013 when she was winning Australian Opens. Um, and she's she's brought that back again. I think there's something around... I haven't actually counted it up, but I imagine it's something she'll have won something like 15 out of 17 matches on a hard court since um, tennis resumed or something, or 15 out of 18, something like that. Um, it's a slightly smaller number than that, but yeah, it's in that, certainly it's in that region. Something in that kind of region. So, you know, she, she is once again one of the best players on hard court some form and yeah long may it continue because she's a, an interesting character to have in the game she never shies away from giving a big opinion and stuff she is a character she's a different player so hmm. yeah it's good to have her back have, I don't know have either of you ever been to Belarus for tennis or non-tennis reasons uh, no no I, so I just have you find it interesting but no I haven't I, I mean I'm kind of intrigued because it's famously Europe's last dictatorship um I mean, I wouldn't go now because it's a bit more unresty than it used to be. Um, isn't that but, offici- officially the last dictatorship, isn't it? I think there's a few uh, sort of hovering well, around. Dominic Cummings, I thought. But no, I mean, they have a lot of tennis tournaments on there. Uh, they have a lot of futures um, on in Belarus. Um, and a, a, a few of the lads who I know, a few of the players have been a few times um, I'm just kind of intrigued, you know, they've got two women inside the top 15 all of a sudden, which is far more than can be said for us. And I wonder what the tennis scene is there. There was a strange situation with a a lad who I know who played Futures there. I don't know whether it's last year or the year before, where they have some very strange visa rules. And I think he'd gone for, uh, for three tournaments in a row there, but you can only stay in the country for two weeks. So basically he had to have a situation where he had to leave the country and then come straight back in it. So the only way to do that was he had to fly to, I think maybe fly to somewhere in Russia, like, and literally walk off the plane and get back on another plane and fly back to Belarus. And they <laughs> just seemed to have no logic. And I think it cost him about something like 450 quid just for the, uh, the right to be in Belarus for another week. Um, so that, 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 that's sort of, that, that, that's the, the best I've got. As in terms of a tennis story in Belarus, <laughs> George. No, I, I can't top that. I'm afraid. But I, I was going to give you both a little uh, pop quiz on Belarusian tennis while we're here. So you both know the top two ranked Belarusian women. Who are currently the top two ranked Belarusian men? Uh, yeah, George, I was just trying to think probably of it. probably still Max Mernier, isn't it? <laughs> 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 Twelve hundred, twenty one hundred in the world. It I've, is not. I know it's not him, but it's not the bloke with the dodgy glasses, is it? Istamin. No, he's yeah. uh, Beck. Uzbekistani. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. Who it is. I'll probably know him as well I, from. I tell you what, George. I tell you what, George. We'll let listeners have a think about it, and we can come back to we'll it. We'll come back to that excitement. They can know, and they can have a bit of time to think about it. <laughs> um, 
I see. I mean, I feel incidentally, as someone who wrote a lengthy Belarusian football feature recently, that there might be a lengthy Belarusian tennis feature in the offing. Um, I would love to read that. I'm now a very big fan of, uh, of Arte Borisov. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your um, interesting take on how Sabalenka won the 2019 US Open Singles Championship in your parallel so. universe in My Belarusian tennis. Well, I mean, it would be quite fitting, really, to write something about Belarusian tennis, given Alexander Lutashenko's record, um, and lie about who won the tournament, because it would be right up the street. Uh, <laughs> Let's, let's move on before I actually libel a whole country and or dictator. Um, <laughs> let's talk a bit about Dan Evans, because obviously, um, uh, I think a bit of news that broke just after we recorded last week, um, that Dan Evans will we'll come on to his tennis because he's had a good week on court as well. Um, but he split with his coach, uh, Mark Hilton. George, maybe you can do the sort of news hit on this and, and fill us in on, uh, you spoke to him, I think, or, or maybe had some quotes afterwards about exactly why he, uh, he'd gone with this move. Yeah, um, so the story is pretty pretty simply, uh, Mark Hilton's kind of quite linked to the LTA. He's got um, quite a few kind of, I suppose you'd call them side gigs as well as kind of being, he's still very much linked to the LTA. I'm sure Calvin kind of, kind of fleshed that side of things out a little bit more. But, uh, you know, he Evans was essentially asking Mark to cut those ties with the LTA and be his full-time coach more so full-time than he was and fully commit to him um mark decided he wanted to kind of keep the more i suppose the job security is quite a big one in this like um you know the lta is quite a safe job he's an incredibly highly rated coach in british tennis um it's a lot more secure for him to kind of keep that job where he's very unlikely to to lose it, whereas as we all know, the volatile nature of being out on tour with a player, if you have a bad few months, um, it, it can be curtains quite quickly. So I, I think he didn't want to cut those ties. He, and they've now decided he's going to go back into the LTA full-time. He's obviously had some stints with uh, Kyle Edmund. He had a stint with Dan before Kyle and Liam Brody, I think, before that. Mm. Um, so he now the the kind of official party line is he's going to go back and take that knowledge from the tour and give it back to British tennis and kind of coach into the system and analyse areas Um, I don't know his official role within that but that's kind of the messaging that's coming out from it Um, Calvin I know you know both Hiltz and Dan quite well I, I also know that the news caught you a little off guard um, because George broke it to you on our WhatsApp um, <laughs> what, what did you make of it? And without breaking any confidence, you know, what, what, what is your take on, on what's happened? Fairly, fairly straightforward. Yeah, I mean, um, like you say, Hiltz and, and Devo are both friends of mine, so um, I don't want to sort of go too deeply into it, but I, I don't really know any more info as to what, than what George has said, but uh, from it, it seems that's the case. That What tends to happen, um, I think, in Hiltz's position is that they'll agree, he'll have his job with the LTA and they'll agree, he'll agree to do so many weeks with a player. I think Jeremy Bates has got a similar situation with Katie Bolter, um, where they're sort of employed by the LTA, but there's maybe they do 25 weeks with, with a certain player. Um, and I think it, it's just a straightforward one in, in terms of like what, what both of those guys wanted, Hiltz and, and Evo, was that I think by the sounds of it, Evo wanted somebody who was going to be with him at, at every tournament every week and, and Hiltz sort of, 
he's got a family. Um, he, he he wanted the secure security. I think maybe um, I'm 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 guessing there. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there was any animosity in it. Um, I think it's just um, sort of they couldn't square the circle of of how to carry on. And I know that they're very good friends off the court, and I'm sure that will remain the case. Well, what do you think he's done for Dan in the time that they have worked together in this second spell? Anyway, because he's playing some really decent tennis at the moment. Yeah, I know that. Um, Dan, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, like what does a coach offer at that level? I think it's more of a conversation, and and Hiltz is very is energetic, um, which which suits Evo because he's also very energetic, and I think Hiltz is very good tactically, um, scouting opponents, coming up with sort of finding sort of game plans uh, and communicating those to Evo, and I think that that's what what Dan liked in in Hiltz. They've known each other years, and he. He had him initially, and I think I think that was his third spell with him, actually. So, um, who knows? There might be a fourth. <laughs> Never go back, they say. Um, George, any uh, any vicious gossip on who might be next in frame for Dan Evans? Yeah, not so much gossip as just Dan kind of mentioned uh, a name himself. Um, it is Chris Johnston, um, an Australian guy. I think the general thought process here, I'm not sure what Evans wasn't particularly clear on is how long he sees this partnership. But what is important is that Chris is based in Australia already. Right. Um, so it's someone who can see through the Australian summer without too many issues getting out there and stuff. Um, a marriage is convenience, you might say. Yeah. And I think he, he has been on the British scene before. Is it Lofhagen he worked with before? And yeah. And Calvin can kind of say more yeah. than that, but, um, yeah, he, he he's kind of known around the British scene a little bit. Um, I don't know him personally, but I, I believe he's back in Australia now. And that is kind of a marriage of convenience that also serves as quite a good trial period, I suppose. I know Calvin hates those, but <laughs> it, it's kind of one of those that could work and could not. And either way, you can kind of wash your hands of it if it didn't work out, I guess. Calvin, so, um, I mean, uh, yeah, you hate trial periods, famously. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I know that um, Evo and Jono, uh, that when, when Jono was working with, I don't know Jono that well, I just know him through, I was at the NTC a lot while, you, while he was You know him well George. enough to stick an O on his name. Uh, well, that's why I <laughs> knew him there. <laughs> um, uh, he's from Perth. He's, he's, he's an older generation. He's, he's um, I'm going to say he's probably in his 60s, um, maybe or around about that. Um, maybe, maybe not. Might not be. Might be deeply offending him there. Um, <laughs> but <hope> so. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he's from Perth, um, and I know that sort of just around the players' lounge during that period when I was there and Evo was there and, and Jono was there, they got on very well. Um, they sort of developed a, a, a sort of friendship there, and um, he's you know he's a respected coach. I know, um, and I think it's probably. You know, I don't know how deeply it'll run or whatever. And what's interesting is that I know ever when he when he sort of split with Dave Felgate, um, he sort of highlighted and said he wanted a a coach who who could hit with him regularly and who was nearby. 
Um, and I don't think that's really, well, Jono obviously lives on the other side of the world. <laughs> and, um, and I don't think he does a great deal of hitting either, although he was a very good player in his younger days. But, um, so I don't know, maybe I've always changed what he wants from a coach now that I don't know. I've not spoke to him about it. So, mm-hmm. well, you'd think that, um, sort of number one on the list would be, closing out match points because to come back on to the tennis court once again Dan had match points in a big game and, and didn't convert them um, he got to the semi-final in Antwerp he had four match points against Hugo Humbert the um, I think well thought of French left-hander um, but it's not the first time we've seen him blow match points George I imagine that you were watching this somewhere in a bar or something or, or not in a bar whatever's legal I don't know I'm sure you're doing it perfectly legally <laughs> I was, I was in my living room on this occasion, actually. It was kind of that middle of legal, after, Saturday afternoon. Moment. It was it was legal. It was legal. Just about. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was a good match, actually. Um, I thought Dam, again, showed why he's been up at the level he has been in the last year or two. Played some excellent tennis kind of early on. Got himself into that winning position. Um, as he did against Vavrinka, was that the week before? I think it was the week before. Was it, was it week mm. or two before? I can't remember. But, um, Half. Close, anyway. Um, and again, in a, I think the match point, the first, the, the one of the tie breaks certainly was uh, on serve. Um, and it didn't play it particularly well. But I thought Humber's a good player. I mean, there's a lot about him. I, I think Calvin, again, might know, knew a lot about him. Uh, from young level, but I know a lot of people I've spoken to in kind of the French networks, they they think he's got great potential. Um, so it, it's no shame in it. I guess there's always a question, isn't it, when you lose a few matches where you're getting to match point and not seeing them through, does that become a then mental thing that drags on? I think it's too early to kind of say from back-to-back matches that this is something we should be worried about, but it, it's something that will knock your confidence and create a little bit of doubt in your mind next time you're in that position um but it was a pretty tight match and as we all know in tennis with the scoring a match point isn't necessarily a glorious opportunity but to have one on serve in that tie break as well um was was a pretty good chance for him calvin too early to call it a real problem just happens to have happened two weeks in a row yeah i mean i think it's twofold really um ever will probably be really critical of himself on it but uh one um i think it's tough when you're that type of player because he doesn't have like a huge weapon that can just close something out easily um so you know he likes to get into rallies sort of uses slicers and and move the opponents around he's more of an artist on the court but that doesn't sort of it's not conducive to, to really closing things out all the time um, on top of that, though, I think that, you know, an- another aspect of it is he-, he obviously wins a hell of a lot of match points because he's he's been 27 in the world. So it's not that much of a problem. Um, and-, and thirdly, I think that that Humbert, I watched it. I missed the second match point, but on Evo's first two match points, sorry, on Evo, on three of the first and the third match point, Humbert played a hell of a point. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, you know, and I think that's, it's always one of those, I think, you know, when people always go, oh, he, had, he had four match points, but, you know, they might be on the other guy's serve and he might serve four aces. That, that's not blowing a situation. And I know that wasn't the case here, but yeah. I think sort of at least two of the match points he had, I think he had four 
I missed one of them, and he, he missed the forehand that he'd, he'd, he he would have been disappointed in making on one of his match points. I didn't see the other one, but on the other two, Humbert played he played a hell of a point. So mm. um, so yeah, and on on Humbert, I actually I do know a bit about him. Um, I went to the French National Academy in Poitiers. Um, about four or five years ago to spend three days there and watch how they train and that kind of thing. And Humbert was one of the players who was there. He was 16 at the time. Um, and of the sort of, they had the best, the, the six best 16 and under players in France there. Um, yeah. And he he was the one that they considered to be the best. And, and these were the, the three coaches who were there in, in this sort of, Academy in Poitiers is probably the best production line of tennis players in the world when mm. you looked at the players that have come through that academy so the coaches there know what they're talking about um, and they likened him a lot to Guy Forget and apart from that he has a two-handed backhand and Forget had a one um, if you look at their shots they are very similar they're both lefties both have this beautiful timing rangy shots um, both excellent volleyers yeah, I was going to say his, his net play really impressed me against Dan. Like, um, yeah. he's got really, really good hands and good kind of, I suppose, kind of court awareness of when to come in as well. I think yeah. there weren't too many rash net runs that I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to compare him to Rafa just yet. But yeah. Rafa is one of the best players at knowing when to come to the net, and mm-hmm. I, I sensed a little bit of that with him there. Except I thought he actually has better technical ability on the volley than Rafa does. Um, yeah. I also I, I watched a bit of him on one of the dodgy Cologne streams, and I mean every now and again when he flattens out you know, that forehand, it's it's pretty huge actually. Like it, he seems to yeah. have a decent number of weapons. Um, yeah, yeah, he's an all court, a complete all court player. Um, I'd expect him to be top ten in the world um, in the near future. Slam winner? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, although the French tend not to win slams. <laughs> um, but uh, and on that same trip, I mean, I'll sort of give a quick anecdote here. When the coaches there were sort of, and they were excellent in all areas, um, and then they were talking about how they knew that the French were sort of, in their words, they had a weak mentality. And I asked them sort of what they were doing to get round that, and basically they gave all six of the players a book and told them to read it, <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. So okay. <laughs> you know, it gives some uh, insight into maybe why they're not. Um, then they're not mentally the best. Well, I mean, we, um, I was just going to say, we, we quite often say that we, on top of will they be a slam winner is which, which one would you pick for him to win a slam? I think that's quite a hard question with Thunberg because as you say, there's, he, he yeah. can be quite dangerous on all surfaces. I well, think. I, I think his best surface will all, which is a shame that on the Sunday, will always be indoor hard. Yeah. Um, I think that suits him. <laughs> Wimbledon will be there for him. Wouldn't surprise me. And, you know, I was thinking that we've... He, I don't know whether he'll have one of the great serves, but we've not had a great lefty serve for some time, have we? Um, one that you Gilles say, Muller. Yeah, but again, my favourite. Great one. But, um, <laughs> That's pretty big. Big enough to take Rafa yeah, out just, twice. Sort of first era that we've had where you would say that there's not been that. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, he, he could add to it. He, he's got everything there. If he adds an extra sort of 5% to his serve, Wimbledon comes into the mix. Well, Wimbledon's interesting because I think if we're doing my weekly dig into a random draw, I'm pretty sure he denied um, a Djokovic-Felix meeting in the fourth round of Wimbledon and went he on did, to yeah, play Novak. Yeah. yeah. So there we go. That's my 
that's my weekly dip into a, an old drawer archive that popped into my head randomly. Very yeah. good and very weird for you. Um, just a, a sort of a, a, a neat segue. Um, in, in Evans's quarterfinal, he beat a really, really good win, I think, from a set down against Karen Hachinov. Um, yeah. Feisty. A very, yeah, it was a feisty uh, match. Um, essentially, to sort of sum it up, a couple of dodgy line calls and then Hachinov kicks the sort of sponsor's sign on the net and then whacks the umpire's chair as well. And just on a side note, whacking the umpire's chair is quite a bold move, isn't it? I mean, that's usually quite a significant penalty. Yeah. Uh, I mean, players have been, I'm pretty sure players have been defaulted for that before, haven't they? Yeah, I think it's pretty close. But anyway, he wasn't defaulted um, and he did lose. But, George, you were saying it's triggered quite a significant discussion about electronic line calling and, you know, whether, whether that should be pretty much in place everywhere that can possibly do it now. Yeah, it has, and it's an interesting one because it, it's one of these things that the players um, seem to be getting a lot more into on social media. Um, I wouldn't say this is maybe a sign of the kind of younger generation who are a bit more tuned into social media, but I wouldn't say we've had too many examples in tennis um, over the past five or ten years where players are like going in on social media about something they don't like within tennis on quite a consistent basis but it seems players like uh, Shapovalov's the kind of main main guy who's doing this recently it started off um I didn't start off but in, mo- in this most recent chain of events started off at the French Open um where he was upset with um a call I mean we, we've spoken a little bit before about why Hawkeye's not the right word to use on clay anyway because it's actually a different system that's more accurate on clay at the minute but just for the sake of simplicity, we'll stick with Hawkeye as the term. Um, so starting off with one of them, he wasn't very happy with, but now there's been a few examples where he's kind of coming in and, th- and this was one of them where he was pretty vociferous and kind of actually going back and forth uh, with David Law, um, who's uh, a man with many roles within tennis, shall we say. Um, he And David was kind of putting across the point that he feels that uh, there's a certain level of interest and drama that's created by not having electronic line calling. I know that's something that someone like Patrick Muratoglu um, prescribes to. He, in fact, has said he would get rid of Hawkeye full stop. That's how far he would take it because he thinks you're missing the drama um, and it's, you know, kind of like, He's always talking about going back to kind of the McEnroe era. Um, I I'm sorry, a... I just, I, I, this winds me up so much. The idea that your argument for not using Hawkeye more is because it's really exciting when tennis players get angry. As if, like, tennis players won't get angry anymore because there is it's Hawkeye. Can you imagine? They just pick and choose when to get angry anyway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess, like, the, the you could say that, that match between Evans and Hatchinov generated infinite more interest than it would have done um, without that sort of contentious moment. Um, I, I guess it comes into a general argument, doesn't it, of how much of sport is entertainment and how much we should be actually pushing towards it to be complete perfection. But it doesn't... Um, it, it, provo- it creates moments of intrigue and, yeah, OK, a video that does big numbers on Twitter. But, like, that's not what keeps tennis alive. What will keep tennis alive is financially sustainable tournaments. And if you've got to put Hawkeye in every ATP 250 court, 
that's not going to make it financially sustainable, is it? The, the problem is as well, and I don't think people, a lot of people don't understand this, is with, with, with umpires and line judges is that they don't make much money throughout the year. They make their money from the big tournaments. Um, but you have to, they still have to sort of be trained and, and developed through the levels of tennis to get there. If you take away the big tournaments, if you go solely to a, a Hawkeye system, they're going to have no reason to have umpires at those tournaments. And then the tournaments lower down where they don't get paid, they're not going to want to do them. So who's going to call the lines at the tournaments that can't afford the Hawkeye tournaments, the futures, the challengers on the, on the outside courts, even of, even of the two fifties. Um, and, and the system breaks down there. And, and I think we're some, some way off getting Hawkeye on every tennis court in the world <laughs> where there's a yeah. tournament. Um, and also, also it's like, you know, it doesn't get said enough. There is like, what is it, a 1.5 millimeter margin of error? It always cracks me up when, when they have these that, you know, and they sort of show one that's like half a millimeter out. And you think, well, well, was it? Or was it? <laughs> well, funnily enough, sh- sh- given we're talking about Shapovalov a little bit, you know, he had, there was actually a video of him a week ago, like screaming at an umpire because he didn't believe Hawkeye had got the right call. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's one the, of those the, things. The flip side of this one is it goes back to my theory, which I get berated for it a lot, is that I would just love to have no line judges and have the players call their own lines. Well, <laughs> if, if you wanted entertainment, that would be it. I've well, seen some cracking videos. Just because I'd, I'd, I'd love to see, say, Fognini play Djokovic like in a semi of a slam, calling their own court, calling their own balls. <laughs> By, and tell me that wouldn't be entertaining for tennis. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would, I'd, I'd watch that all day long. Yeah. Well, I think it's probably one of those debates that's going to go on and on. And I, for me, the, you know, we've had this debate in football with the AR, in cricket with Hawkeye. It, it annoys me because Hawkeye is not a, it's not a silver bullet. It's not perfect, no, to say. No. There's a significant margin of error on it. And, you know, you have to sort of mark for that. And I think unless it's perfect, you shouldn't be using it in a blanket way. I mean, I think, tennis, I think how they use it, they've got it right in tennis. I wish football would use it more like that, where mm-hmm. each manager gets two challenges per match or something. But I think the way that it works, I, I don't see why we need to change it. I think how we've got it at the minute is actually pretty good. Mm. Um, but um, I, I just don't think it's... It, it as an element as well of when Shapovalov's saying that, I've been a bit removed from the bigger picture of tennis. Just saying, why can't we have Hawkeye on every court? Well, there's a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. I mean, like economically, in terms of putting Hawkeye, even you know, I remember talking to British organisers of like the Fed Cup and stuff, where they they were using Hawkeye um, at the copper box, and they were kind of you know normally at that level of Fed Cup, which was essentially like a a League One playoff, really. Yeah. Um, to be using Hawkeye was costing them you know something in the region of. 30 grand or something. Um, yeah, it's, I read $60,000 a court. That's what I thought. I thought it's yeah. £50,000 a court, I'd heard. So that would sort of be around about what we're okay. talking about. So, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not a cheap thing. And that, and that was just for one court rather than, like, extensively across a lot of courts. Um, and I imagine, like, the line calling... To, I suppose on the flip side of that is that if you're getting rid of all the line judges completely, you're probably saving a bit of money not that, that way, but not as 
I wouldn't say as judges, much. I, don't, I, I wouldn't don't, know. But I don't know what the line judges' car park is like, but I'm assuming it's not all Bentleys and Murcielagos. <laughs> random stab in the dark. Um, one that's going to rage on and on. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. Um, it'd be interesting to hear some other people's opinions. Um, I'm sure there'll be uh, lots of diverse and angry debate because it is Twitter after all. Um, let's move on to this coming week. Uh, we're off to Vienna. Um, why always Vienna means nothing to me. Erste um, Bank Open to give it its official term. Dominic Team's homecoming to give it my official term. Um, Djokovic is a wild card slash number one seed classic. Um, George, he's basically skipping the Paris Masters because he's champion and won't lose his points. Um, so he's exploiting the good nature of the ATP system. <laughs> Not <Nasty> Novak. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I, I certainly, I it's not something he should necessarily be dug out over. I think it's quite a sensible strategy, to be honest. Um, mm. But it, but it is, you know, it is a slight loop. Well, not really loophole, but you know, it makes no sense for him to go to Paris. Really, to zero be weekend. fresher, fresher for London, where he didn't come out the group stages last year. I think I'm right saying. I think Federer and team went out of his group. Um, so. Yeah, it's a good chance for him to stack things up, and he's pretty, you know, he's pretty honest about what he's up to. He's trying to make sure he passes Federer in March or whenever it is, April next year, March, March. Um, for most weeks at world number one. And to be honest, it's quite hard to see him not doing that because um, I expect him to pick up a fair amount of points uh, in London, if not in Vienna this week. Yeah, it's going to be one of those things where we have to talk about how Djokovic might break the all-time number one record this week. He's going to do it, isn't he? I mean, it's there's, a bit there's like no... Hamilton breaking Schumacher's record. There wasn't much intrigue because if he didn't do it this week, he was going to do it next week or yeah. one of the 20 weeks after that. Um, it's pretty much nailed on. Yeah, but, And he's, and he's um, already matched Sampras's record for year-end world number ones. He's already done that. That's, that's sewn up. But that... That's something that has not really been shouted about too much, presumably, because we've not got to kind of the year-end one number one trophy. But I think that's quite a significant milestone because if you hear like Rafa talking about it, he's always saying that he thinks year-end number one is, you know, you've had a full, complete season. That's more important to him than kind of the cumulative, oh, I can just hang on to it till like September or whatever. Um, So I think, and you remember Andy's charge at the end of the season, that, that was quite an important thing to be kind of year-end number one. So I think that that is something that he deserves a lot of credit for as well. Six times. I was actually thinking earlier on when about, about this one that uh, that's another one of Federer's records that will probably go. And it would be mad how, you know, at the end of it all, which, which records do we think Federer will still hold? Because at the minute, or, or even sort of a year ago, you pretty much had them all. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, like, maybe it's, it might just be Wimbledon's. Most Wimbledon, yeah, and it, um, even then, even then, it's uh, not certain. It's not certain. It's not, like, no, what's he got? He's got Djokovic he's got three, three behind. Up, him. He's three up on Djokovic, and I wouldn't say there's anyone emerging that I think's no. re- a really good grass court player. So I think Djokovic has got a good chance to add at least two. Yeah, if um, if others don't really step up, so that would be mad if he doesn't end up having any of them. Although he probably will... Is he ahead on titles one? He's well clear on that, surely, is he? I'm, he I'm is. just trying to find... I mean, he, he, he is quite far clear, but you, and I, I'm not sure that one's in Novak's sights, which is probably for the best for him. Yeah. But I think that one, kind of Novak's a bit like, meh. 
Um, yeah. But it'd be interesting if that if he did just turn his attention to that. As I said, I think yeah. Novak is going to aim for 25 slams anyway. That's my conspiracy theory. I think theory. he'll take the it's slams. Tennis. He'll take the weeks at number one. <laughs> um, he'll take the US. Has he already got more US Opens? Or, no, I think Roger, uh, Roger's level with Agassi maybe on that. Um, no, Agassi, 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 not Agassi, not Agassi, Agassi only won um, two. Corey, no, um, not Agassi. What's his name? Is, uh, Con- is it Sam Press? I thought it was just like Connors. Someone maybe quite, Connors. I don't know. I think it might I be Connors. Know. I think there's someone else with five. He's got the most in a row, but I'm pretty sure he's up. But he's going to lose the... the he'll definitely... Federal will lose the tour titles one, won't he? Is he one yeah. ahead of Djokovic on mm. that? He's, um, incidentally, on US Opens, it's uh, Federer 5, Sampras 5, Connors 5. Oh, there we go. Connors. And how many Djokovic? How many Djokovic got? Djokovic has got three. Three. Right. So, okay. Has Rafa got four now? Oh, Rafa's no. got four, yeah. Rafa's got four. I mean, yeah, I mean, looking through it, you know, there's, there's a few consecutive records, but, you know, they're quite obscure. The big headline records, Djokovic will probably break almost all of them, realistically, um, which is maybe uh, and, slightly sad. And, and Djokovic has already held all four slams at once, which Roger and Rafa haven't done. I mean, that yeah. in itself is a pretty... I think there was someone was posting one on Twitter um, that was reading that he, Federer was, actually this might have been an old article, but I think he was something about being in the most Grand Slam finals in a calendar year of anyone, even though he didn't win them all. That was quite a rogue one they were pushing. It's funny to <laughs> tell, I, was, I was looking the other day, though, going sort of a bit off piece there. I was looking the other day. I think it's easy to forget as well, though now since he probably will lose them, just how dominant Federer was for a three-year period. It was pretty much, apart from the French, I think for three years, apart from the French, he won every slam um, or, or something around that um, between about 02 and 05, which is just but ludicrous. Then, but then, you know, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit before, people will say, oh, but he played, you know, Stonzars yeah. and, you know, Baghdatis and all sorts of people and farms, yeah. You're absolutely right. Basically, between 2004 and 2007, apart from the French, Federer won all but one slam, with yeah. the, you know Marit Safin being the only one who won another. Yeah. If, yeah. if you'd have said in 2009 Roger Federer wouldn't outright hold the record for most US Open titles, no one would have believed you. I mean, that that's astonishing. He won like five in a row. Mm. Lost yeah. to Del Potro, and he's... Not one one. Not done it since. I mean, that's bonkers. If you just one record that Federer will hold most matches lost from match point up. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I think it's like 20, 23 or something. George, you wanted just to move on slightly. You want you you were you were eyeing the draw in uh, Vienna and how exciting it looks. Um, there have already been a couple of results, and dare I say shocks, um, because Denis Shapovalov is already out, having Uh-oh. lost to, and I'm going to struggle to pronounce this because I've never heard of him before, Junji Rodionov, the home hero. Yeah, and, and the line judges around the world are rejoicing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, but there are some pretty tasty um, first round matches in there. I mean, yeah. the one- did you want? Did you want us to do some predicting? Well, we could do. We could do a quick one, couldn't we? I mean, I, I'll, I'll pick out. I mean, there's only about. I'll pick out four. Four of the ones left. Should we do four, or should we do five? Four. Make it an odd oh, number, five, so we don't draw. So yeah. we don't draw. We hate a draw. Yeah. Um, so let's start with Sissipas versus 
And before you mock me, one of the most dangerous first-round opponents in tennis, Jan Leonard Struff. Uh, oh, we need to flip the, the coin. Flip the coin. Oh, Sorry. The virtual coin. I haven't actually got the virtual coin, so we're going left hand, right hand. I've put something in one of my hands. Calvin, which one's it in? Uh, left hand. It is. Well done. Oh, pass or Struff? Uh, pass for me. Wins that one. Okay. I'm not disappointed. I mean, for the first time in my life, I'm not disappointed to have Jan Leonard Struff. Um, I mean, he has beaten Tsitsipas a couple of times. He's beaten him, like, twice, I think. So There we yeah. go. I'll so, not it. a bad one. Take it. Um, Grigor Dimitrov versus Karen Hatchinov, James. Uh, interesting stat about this one. They've only ever played once, and it was at the Hurlingham Club. Um, that doesn't yeah. count, then. No, exactly. <laughs> the exhibition game, Dimitrov won on in three sets on grass. I mean, Dimitrov's been playing pretty well, uh, but so's Hatchinov. Oh... I don't know, indoor, uh, Dimitrov, I don't like it. Dimitrov's got a decent indoor hardcore record. He won the ATP World Tour Finals and stuff. Yeah, Dimitrov. Okay, um, back to Calvin. Uh, Felix auger Aliassime versus Vasek Pospisil. Oof. Uh, I mean, I'd say Felix, but I have no faith in him to win any particular match. Uh <laughs> On the, on the one-off now. Um, yeah, I'll stick with Felix. I think he'll win that. I feel like Pospisil beat him quite recently. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I think he's he? got a half-decent um, head-to-head record. No, absolutely not. 2-0 Felix. Oh. They played I... uh, uh, Wimbledon right? last year and it um, went to four sets, but that's it. I must have made that up then. Yeah. Sounds Strange. Like I, I thought they'd played quite recently. Well, OK. Uh, they also played the Canadian Masters last year. Um, again, Vasek did not win. Vasek okay. Pospisil sounds like a rather unpleasant surgery, but that's maybe just me. <laughs> um, okay, moving swiftly on from that. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, this one's not particularly good, but they are two names you'll have heard of. So, James, I think I know who you're going to go for here, but uh, Christian Garin versus Stan Wawrinka. Uh, well, I suppose... I mean, Garin, I can't, I can't ever remember him winning a match not, not on clay. So Stan Wawrinka, obviously, yeah, it's a match. Okay, the the other ones seem quite like one sided, apart from no, this one. How do you not Sinner? So, so I've now nah, I think Sinner will kill him on the yeah on a card. So, so so interesting I, I go, second round there, Sinner against Rublev, yeah, two very informed players. Mm. But I've got one that I think is quite tricky if not low-profile, but worthy of a tiebreaker here. Dusan Lajovic versus Lorenzo Sonogo. Two pretty <laughs> decent clay quarters. Who is Wake winning? me up, Lorenzo <laughs> Sonogo. <laughs> yeah. So, Calvin, you get, you get the choice uh, in the big I'd, match. And then Lajovic is winning that one. Sonogo lost in qualities. He's in his lucky loser anyway. So. Yeah. Well, you never know what a lucky loser's yeah. going to do. Yeah. Can I just point out one match that you've ignored for reasons? I mean, unless... I'm missing something, but isn't um, Dan Evans playing Aliaz? Bednay. Yeah, I, I just yeah. fancy Evans on that. I thought I thought he's a clear favourite for that for me. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, that, Evans that is was... like when you when you look at his sort of even his record before last week, he's he's only losing to very good players. Yeah. Um, you know that's sort of one thing I think that you can you know sort of say so he's he's in pretty decent form, and if he'd had a few kind of draws, I think recently he might be even higher up the rankings. Hmm. 
I think, chaps, we have reached the end of our list, but George, you've yep. got one last dying thought. Well, it was one thought you were supposed to write down and come back to. You're absolutely right, George. That's very good from you. I have written it down. I just played. Uh, the top-ranked male Belarusian player. I still you've, can't you've had a chance to Google it. really annoying me. Um, if you've got it at home, well done. No, no one's written it in if they have got it. Um, but I, you, I've, I have heard of both of them. Um, what do you one mean of both them? Because oh, oh, the we were doing the top two. Because oh. it was Sabalenka and Azarenka, wasn't it? So we well, were I've doing. Heard of the, I've heard of the number one. I've heard of yeah. the Belarusian number one, who I believe is Egor Gerasimov. Correct. And the second one, Ilya Ivashka, who I believe might have taken Dan Evans out of Wimbledon qualifying when he was on that mad run. Or did he win that? He definitely played him in Wimbledon qualifying. He, he either beat him or lost to him on that run <laughs> well, where he had, to, he had to go through pre-qualies right, um, yeah. to come in. I can't remember if he beat him or lost to him, but I'm pretty no, certain. Dan Evans beat him four and four. So, so he beat him, he, all right, and then he lost to someone else in the round after. But that's, that's how I remember him. That's Again, two rogue draws in one pod today. There we go. That is, that's how your like memoirs all begin. Yes, I remember <laughs> Ilya Ivashka. Uh, you might be the only one. George Cowan, thank you very much for your Cheers, time. lads. Uh, yeah, it's been fun. Uh, if you are listening back on the podcast, please uh, leave us a review and a rating. Nice ones only. If you've got any abuse or complaints, please direct them to at George Belshaw on Twitter, as always. <laughs> um, and we'll be here next week, 9.30, probably. <laughs>